Uh, let's, uh, let's pray to the Lord, shall we, before we get into our word. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that we can come together, uh, even as we sum this morning, unified in you, in your love for us, in the way in which you provided all that we need for the rest of eternity. Uh, we do call out, Lord, uh, come. We look forward to your return. Uh, Father, we pray this morning as we hear your word, Lord, that we wouldn't hear uh, my voice, but that we'd hear yours. Lord, that we wouldn't uh, be shaped and have your word changed by our own hearts into something that is unhelpful for us, Lord, but that we'd hear your truth, that would set us free, that would give us a path, Lord, into a greater understanding of who you are, greater delight in your Son. We pray this morning that we would see and hear you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I thought I'd start off this morning just telling you a little bit about my morning. This morning is a good morning. The weather is lovely. I'm sure you will have all have noticed. It's especially lovely when you've had your children babysat overnight by your grandparents, by your uh, parents-in-law, and you only wake up an hour before having to leave for church. Very lovely indeed. Uh, this morning is good. Everything seems to be ticking well. I feel like life is sitting in the palm of my hand and I am, in, I am its master. I'm in control. What a foolish thing to think, isn't it? I'm sure you'll have experienced in times of life where you feel like you're in control and then something comes like that. Some power inside uh, that exists in our life that strips away all of our control and really reveals us for what we are. People that have very little power, little authority to control some of the elements that exist here in this world. It doesn't take much to reduce us to a place where we actually, instead of feeling like we are the masters, like we're in a position of fear, where we are scared about where life will take us, that we have no sense of stability. Where do we go to draw courage to be able to face powers that are beyond ourselves in this world, to be able to face these trials? Well, this morning... As we read through Matthew, we read of the disciples of Jesus experiencing their own fear in a situation that was far too great for them, the wind and the waves. Jesus has just called his disciples to follow him, making it clear to them, as we saw last week, that it would mean leaving the certain comforts of home and family behind them and here they are aboard a boat heading out into the sea of Galilee where they are beset by a storm now this is no small storm these men are experienced fishermen <clears throat> there's no <clears throat> sorry you've got two pastors that both have asthma <clears throat> goodness <clears throat> Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is no small gale that comes upon them. 
Matthew, in fact, uses the word seismos to describe the storm. Something that I think you'll, you'll find familiar with means earthquake. It's a word used elsewhere in the book of Matthew to describe apocalyptic occurrences, movements of the earth. This storm, we're to understand, seemed to the disciples as it was bringing everything to an end. And they were scared. How were they to face such a power as this? From where were they to draw their courage to face this threat? Now, we must remember that the disciples of Christ have been called to follow him. To leave behind their old lives, the comforts of their homes and family. But I think also what we see is to leave behind any confidence that they have in themselves and in their own power. Here they are, experienced fishermen, as I've said, that learnt the trade, not only across their own lifetimes, but from generations before them, from their forefathers. Generation from generation has taught them how to live on this sea. That's how careers went in those days. These men could read the waters. They could understand the wind. They knew when a storm was coming and when to head for shore, when to seek safety and how to get themselves out of trouble when it occurred. If anyone had reason to have courage in the face of this sort of situation, it was these men. Courage in their own seafaring seafaring prowess. Yet suddenly, in the face of of this ferocious wind and waves, it's too much. It blows away their experience like dandelion fluff and it drowns their courage. There was nothing in themselves that could save them. And to moments like this in life, when faced with the powers of this world that are out of our control that we are made to see the limit of human authority. Like the psalmist in Psalm 8, looking at the stars and the moon, where he says, what is man? So small, so powerless before so many things in this world and in creation. We are not the titans that we so often believe ourselves to be, when things are going well, walking the earth, doing whatever we will, believing that we have the right and the power to change the boundaries of creation and how it was made to suit our desires. The storms of life reveal us not to be titans, but just to be scared children, helpless in a world that is entirely too big for us. And so at the end of their tether, the disciples do all that they can and they call out to Jesus. A man who, while they're suffering a life crisis and questioning the viability of ever becoming fishermen, is sleeping peacefully in the ship. Lord, save us, we are perishing. 
they cry. And he awakes and responds, Why are you afraid? You of little faith. Now, Jesus is not an experienced fisherman. He hasn't grown up on the water. He didn't receive an education handed down from generations of fishermen. He's a carpenter that has turned rabbi. If anyone should have reason to fear in this situation, it is Jesus. And yet, in hearing the chords of panic in the voices of his disciples and seeing this apocalyptic storm around them, ready to drag the boat down into Davy Jones' locker, he's at peace. There's nowhere calmer in all of creation, I think, than in the heart of Christ in this moment. Why are you afraid? The answer to Jesus' question seems so self-evident. They're afraid because their lives are on the verge of being snuffed out. Yet while the reason for their fear seems obvious to us and to the disciples, to Jesus it seems so different. While the threat and the power of the wind and the waves has revealed the disciples' authority as child-sized, Jesus reveals his authority to the storm and to creation and dwarfs it. He rebukes the wind and the waves as though telling off a dog that has begun to jump on the visitor and it obeys him becomes calm and becomes still. Now this account of Jesus saving his disciples from the wind and the water may be seen as simply that, a saving from drowning in the Sea of Galilee. But as we've seen in the last few miracles of Jesus, where he has healed people, it wasn't simply of their illness and their diseases, but of the greater consequences of sin. So there is more to this story as well. For the sea in ancient Hebrew writing was always depicted as a place of chaos. The tossing and the turning of uncontrolled and unbound forces. It's present in the creation account. It's the dark waters that we see right at the beginning that the spirit hovers over before creation. Waters that sustained no life, took no shape of their own, that held no intent of its own. It's a depiction of uncreation. It's not God's equal, for he has power over it, but it is the absence of him. For when God speaks at creation by the power of the word, it is this chaos that suddenly snaps into water. It comes into place. The word establishes boundaries and definitions. Day and night are created. Land, sky and sea, creatures in all their shapes and forms and ways. And above all, the peak of creation, man and woman are made. And without God's creating and sustaining power, without his word... All things returned back into this chaotic state. 
This is the state of uncreation and all things that are bound to sin and decay slowly return back to it. For sin is the seeking of being divorced from God, separated from him. And his power is the only thing that keeps us from being back in these waters. So when Jesus says, why are you afraid? And he saves his disciples, it reveals two powers in this world. First, it's the fear-inducing power of these uncreating waters into which sin would lead us. The result of a life that is without God, drowning in these depths, which is the end result of those who reject the Lord. It's not something often thought about. And I believe the disciples give us the very natural response to a power like this. Save us. We are perishing. Fear. But the second power revealed in this story is that of Jesus. He has authority over those dark waters. Just as he did in creation, where he speaks, they obey. Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Faith, it seems, is the source of courage in times of fear. Faith is where victory over fear rests, but not faith just in anything. Otherwise, the disciples, and I think all Christians throughout history, never would have been saved. We are not short of having self-confidence. No, it is a faith that is based solely upon the one who has authority to save and the desire to do it. It's faith in Jesus. And Jesus gives them a reason to have faith in him, for even though their faith is little, just as ours so often is, he saves them. And we can rest in this knowledge that even though we may only have enough faith to fill a thimble, to be able to eke out through the sound of the storm raging around us and our own fear, Jesus save us he does so if we're calling to him he doesn't hold salvation ransom waiting unwilling to save us until a greater display of faith is revealed to him until we have earned it no he saves them out of his own love for them And in doing so, encourages their faith to grow in him through the display of his own power to overcome and his grace in which it is given. But he does desire that we would grow in our faith. Not so that we will be saved, for he gives that to us, but that we might have a courageous confidence in him to live free of fear 
knowing that we have a saviour who has authority over this power and be wholly and fully bound up in him. Well, the disciples are left agog, mouths open, amazed at what they have just seen, amazed at Jesus. The words they utter in that moment capture an important question that if we have an answer to, we'll never have reason to fear again. That question is, what sort of man is this? We're going to sit with this question as we continue through the rest of our passage. For the demons have one answer to this question. And Jesus himself has a second. And together I think we get a full picture. After Jesus has stilled the storm, they come to the country of the Gadarenes. In particular, they come to a place near the local graveyard. A little different to our own. Rather than a series of headstones, Hebrew tombs are built into the side of cliffs and hills. There were small rooms where the dead were laid. What they would have seen on the embankment would have been a series of door-shaped holes. And as they walked, two men came out of these holes. Out of the tombs, they had been living there among the dead. And the passage calls them demoniacs. Men that have been possessed by demons. And they were fierce to the point that no one would even travel that direction anymore. Out of fear of them. The Gospel of Mark account of this same passage describes one of the men as having strength enough to break iron shackles that were used to try and restrain him. And he would howl at night and bruise himself. And as Jesus approached them, they ran at him, yelling. And they called themselves legion, for it wasn't just one demon present, but many. Here is yet another power in this earth like the dark waters that we seldom think about, another reality to our world oftentimes ignored, the powers of angels and demons that are present and at play in our lives. We are told in Ephesians 6 when Paul is speaking about the armour of God, put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Not only are these powers real, they are the true enemy that Christians struggle against. Not flesh and blood, as Paul says, but rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. This is no meek power. Now, I don't know about you, I tend to avoid horror films. They scare me. (laughs) And they disturb me. Especially ones that touch on topics like this on demonic forces. 
because I read biblical accounts and historical accounts like passages from today and know aspects of these movies to be terrifyingly true. And I imagine that the disciples are feeling exactly the same, scared. They've only just had their shake-up with the storm and now they're being run out by two screaming demon-possessed men that were living among the dead. It is certainly the reaction of the local town. Their fierce natures have driven people from even being willing to travel in that direction. They are put at a distance even further than those who had leprosy. As the disciples were with the storm, so now the townspeople were afraid of these forces, of these men of their wild and destructive nature. Another power that seems to exceed the authority of men. And it is true for the townspeople, and even more so true for these two poor souls that have been possessed. Neither of them have the ability to just throw them off and to dispel them by themselves. Once again, we see the limit of human authority in this world, like helpless children, afraid. The spiritual forces of evil do not appear so obvious to us in Australia. So we do not fear, and in fact we tend to make mockery of the powers of evil to create movies and to laugh about the devil. We have such a subdued reaction to their reality. But just because we cannot see them does not mean they are not at play or that we can ignore them. I'm certainly not going to, uh, to swing the pendulum so far as to blame the devil for all misfortunes that befall us. Even from our readings in the last weeks, not every instance of healing is Jesus expelling demons, but some are. And although it may be scary, we need to wrestle with this reality. For if Paul says that the Christian's main fight isn't against blood and flesh, but devils, And if we ignore that they exist, we may be fighting quite poorly. And important to this message, we may be putting our faith in the wrong thing. Remember, faith conquers fear, but it must be faith in the right thing. Do we inadvertently place our faith in in belief that these demonic powers don't exist rather than in Jesus. That we don't need to fear, because like we tell of the kids about the monster in the closet, it doesn't exist. But what happens when we come to a real fight and find out that there is a monster in the closet? That faith based in the denial proves false and fear suddenly rushes back in 
demonic powers are real and we must find faith in the right thing to stop us from being afraid. Something that holds authority even over the demons and it can't be in ourselves. The demons broke all the bonds of authority placed upon them except for one. Even iron chains didn't stand up to them. But even a glance at Jesus. And it has them saying something unusual. These men that howled in the night. What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? And they beg him to be sent into pigs Now, these are not words or an attitude the demons had for anyone else. Although clear they were not on the same side as Jesus, they submit to him. We are reminded here of the disciples' words about Jesus after stilling the storm. What sort of man is this? That even the demons would submit to his word. And the demons give us an answer. He is the son of God. He has authority and power greater than any other. We saw it in the storm, the power of the creator and the sustainer. And we see it here with the demons. Rather than reflecting on their origin, they speak of a day that is to come. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Speaking of a day when the Son of God will come to judge the earth. As Martin Luther says, it will be a most happy of all days when that happens. Because on that day, Jesus will come to judge the earth. He will finally vanquish all that is evil and not of him from creation. Demons, powers, sinful men... All are in that day, Revelation says, even the chaotic sea will be dried up and exist no more. There will be nothing that is not God. There will only be, it says, a river. And even that river will be glass-like in its peace and serenity. Furthermore, with the defeat of all evil comes the full and complete redemption of his children and of creation. The day where we will be united to him without anything anything separating us. Sorry. The son of God as judge is a wonderful image of the final destruction of evil, but also the salvation of God's people. For the demons, it is their last day, and they know even now that they live on borrowed time. Their defeat by the one who stands even now in front of them is a sure thing. And they are desperate to live. So they beg him, even now, to be sent into pigs, And Jesus says one word to them, go. And they do. And upon entering the pigs, something interesting happens. 
The pigs immediately turn and rush down the embankment and they go straight into the very same dark sea from which his disciples have been saved. Into that same judgment from which his disciples have been rescued by him. Jesus is the judge indeed. Now the townspeople hear of this occurrence and they, like the demons, beg Jesus. Rather than seeing him as the one that saves and following him, they are afraid of him. Seeing him only as another power that threatens their comfortable way of life. They don't see the nature of his power. A power and authority bound, as we will soon see, to his identity, not only as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, come to seek and to save. So Jesus crosses the sea again, coming to his own town. This is neither Bethlehem nor Nazareth, but Capernaum. Jesus' reputation as a healer of the sick has preceded him, for quickly people seem to come to him, carrying with them a man who is paralysed. In a very quick and clear way, Jesus sees their faith, as he did with the leper and the centurion from last chapter. And he sees, uh, and what he saw a little of in the disciples on the water, they have a faith that is based solely upon him, to heal them. And Jesus says to them, uh, to the, the man, the paralyzed man, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Wasn't there something more pressing that needed to be done? Something a little more obvious than the forgiveness of sins for this poor man lying in a bed? He's paralyzed. He's a social outcast. It is surprising, really, that people were even willing to carry him to Jesus, given the attitude towards those who were physically unable in that day. Why does Jesus forgive him rather than heal him? Well, Jesus is the great physician. Doesn't he know what is most critical and urgent and in need for this, for this man, greater even than he himself knew? Here Jesus makes aware, us aware of yet another great power in this world. A power that afflicts all men and women alike, that cripples us and threatens our lives in a far more urgent way than any other it's the great power of sin. Though Jesus' words, though Jesus' words of forgiveness were not likely what the paralytic or the men around him wanted to hear or expected, they were far more necessary than even the healing of his body. To fix his body would lead to rejoicing for a day. But the forgiveness of sin leads to rejoicing for eternity. Now the scribes hear Jesus utter the words of forgiveness and they say amongst themselves, this man is blaspheming. 
because only God can forgive sins. Now we have to be fair to the scribes. The process they knew of forgiveness was the one taught from the Old Testament. Sins were forgiven by bringing an offering to the temple. Yet here is Jesus with no offering, no temple, no priest. The scribes are not total idiots. Were this anyone but Jesus, they would be bang on in saying what they say. But it was Jesus. And they had already heard of his amazing miracles, proving that he was not a regular case. Jesus responds to them with something called a fortiori, which is a style of argument, meaning if something more difficult then what has been claimed can be done, then it validates the claim of the less difficult. Did everyone follow that? (laughs) Good. (laughs) What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, stand up and walk? Don't think about it too deeply. What can be proven? It is so much easier to say to someone, Your sins are forgiven because it cannot be verified. But to say to someone, stand up and walk, there is immediate evidence in her eyes. So Jesus says to the man, stand up, take your bed, go home. And he does. All of this to prove to the scribes and to us that Jesus as the son of man has authority over this new power as well. That even the threat of sin holds no sway before him. Remember again the disciples' words, what sort of man is this? The demons gave part of the answer. He is the son of God and Jesus the other. He is the son of man. By what power does he subdue the sin that rests in the hearts of men? How does he restore us to a place of peace away from that sea of chaos? What is the nature of by which he saves us, the power by which he does it. He says that it is because he is the son of man that he has authority to forgive. And we must hear this, he can forgive us and restore us to peace, not simply because he is God, but because he came as man. He's not the son of angels. He came to represent And to substitute humanity. So that as judge when he comes to defeat all that is evil. And save it is man that he saves. He is the man. The second and final Adam. Our substitute and representative. He unlike anyone else in all of creation. Sits in a place of authority over us. 
an authority that allows him to forgive sin, an authority that he gained by way of the cross, of giving his own life. Only earlier this week, I was reading the Jesus storybook to my kids and we came across the passage or the portion that speaks of Jesus on the cross. Can you imagine the God who stops, who speaks to the wind and the waves and they listen, hanging upon the cross? And people calling out to him saying, why don't you just call the angels to come and save you? And he could, but he didn't. So that he could do this, so that he could say to us, as he did to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, daughter, your sins are forgiven. He holds out his forgiveness to us, filled with love and eager for us to take it and to have peace between us and God, to be saved from all the powers of this world. It costs us nothing to take it. But that doesn't mean it costs nothing. For it cost him his life. Now I don't say this to indebt us with guilt this morning. Because Jesus doesn't guilt us into following him. We do not owe him for his sacrifice. Because that is grace. Freely given. I say it that we may see the depth of his love for us. For you, that he loves us so much, wanting us to be free from all the fear and the powers of this world, to be united with him. That it was a delight to him and his father to go to the cross, a joy even in the suffering. And his love leads him in all of his authority authority and power as the Son of God, to willingly go there to redeem us. And he becomes for us someone to place our faith in, so that even now in this world and in the times where the powers of this life make themselves known and we suddenly realise how small our own authority is as we're blown to and fro, that we have a saviour that has authority over all things. And not just that he has authority to save us, but that he desires to do so and has. So then, as the psalmist says, he may realise that he is small in comparison to all of creation and the stars and the moon. But because of what Christ has done, he is a conqueror. He has authority and has a crown of glory 
I pray this morning that we have seen is a funny message to preach in some ways because I want you to be afraid to feel the powers that are in this world that would threaten us if we did not have someone greater who keeps us for all of eternity. I pray that the Lord has revealed that to us this morning. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. As we see and and think about your passage this morning, Lord, the word you gave Matthew, oh, we are so grateful, Heavenly Father. I cannot even imagine a life where Lord, to even see the truth but know that there is no saviour. Where our only options are to be totally afraid or completely absorbed in lies so that we're not afraid. There's no life there. And yet you give us truth that we can see even a small piece, Lord, of things that would otherwise leave us trembling and yet be there right beside us as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, as a God of love. Lord, guiding us and and taking us through this life where we need not be afraid because of you. How great is your power. How wonderful your mercy and your love. That none of this is deserved or earned, but simply given. We pray that these things would continue to loom large in our lives, Lord. That if we haven't thought about such things, Lord, that, uh, that you would help us to meditate upon them. That we might see more the wonders of Jesus of who he is, of what sort of man this is. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.